I want to start back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 tonight just to remind us again the key verse or verses of this letter and what the letter of 1 Timothy is all about. Verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you in case I am delayed to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God because it is the church of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. What these verses remind us of is that just because someone is a Christian and becomes a Christian doesn't mean any of us, really, without being instructed, know how we should conduct ourselves as part of the family of God. We, none of us, when we become a Christian, know how to do church, how to be a part of the church. What, what, what should we be doing as the church? That's something we have to be instructed to do, and that's what Paul's saying. I want you, Timothy, to instruct your congregation, your people there at Ephesus, how to conduct themselves. What should be the code of conduct for us as believers as part of a church, as part of a local church? And I really see this showing up today because I think it it reminds us of why for the last so many decades where the church has neglected to really teach its people the Word of God at the depth that we should be teaching, that we have many, many people now who are Christians and who are part of a church, but they have no idea what their responsibilities are as being part of the church, because they've never been taught. They, they don't know, you see. And so it's up to us to make sure that we know what we should be doing as part of the church, that God has given us specific instructions as Christians as to how to, how to be part of the family of God, how to be part of the church, and that's what this is all about. So last week, We started off in the first seven verses being reminded that the first thing then Paul is telling Timothy is make sure that in your church that you are delivering sound doctrine and sound teaching to your people. In fact, the first thing he tells them is you've got to shut down the false teaching that's happening in your church. Because the false teaching that's happening in verse 3 of chapter 1, if you go back there, that's messing up what you're trying to do as the pastor by bringing the right teaching. So eliminate the false teaching and then keep teaching the Word of God because we can't expect the people of God to grow, to mature, to prosper spiritually and to be in good health if they don't have good teaching, if they don't have the right spiritual diet, if they're not being nourished on the Word of God. And so that's what we talked about last week was how important it is that you and I make sure that we have a good spiritual diet in our lives at all times. And again, not just through the church, but that we learn to feed ourselves and get out of our own time with the Word of God, you know, the, the spiritual nourishment that we need. So with all of that, he's sort of now going to continue in verse uh, 8, talking about, if you will, the Word of God. But specifically in this context, he wants to make a reference to the Mosaic Law. And as we go down through this passage tonight that we're going to look at, there's certain key words that, that really 
I guess the, the only way they, they are they are key. They 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 are something that we need to pay attention to. And the first one that we come to in the passage we're going to look at tonight is found in verse eight. It's the word legitimately. Notice Paul says, "We know, we are very well aware that the law." Again, in this context, I think he's specifically talking about the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Old Testament. We know that the law is good. It has profit, it has benefit, if people use it legitimately. If they use it properly. If they use it rightly. In other words, God gives us resources and tools and instruments to use, but we can use them improperly, rather than properly. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8... He's saying, look, you have to remind your people that there's a right way to use the things that God has given us, and there's a wrong way to use the things that God has given us. And it's very possible that we can improperly use the Word of God, even, for what its intent was by God, what its purpose was given. And as far as the law goes, as Paul goes on to say, we know that the law was not given for the purpose of, of trying to make us righteous. Notice he goes on here to say, we know that the law is good if someone uses it it legitimately. Realizing that the law is not intended for a righteous person, one who's living in conformity to God, one who is living in alignment with God. The law, however, was intended for the lawless, for the rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral people, for those practicing homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. That's who the law was intended for. Why? Because God gave the law never as a tool or instrument to bring us into a right relationship with God. That's not the purpose of the law. So if we're using it as a benchmark to try to live up to, which how many people down through history have used the law of God in an improper way? They see the law of God like the Ten Commandments and they try to live up to it. Say, I, I got I to be a good person. I got to measure up. That was never the intent. The intent of the law was to show us how sinful we are. Think of the law of God as an x-ray. All an x-ray does when you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, all an x-ray does is show you what's wrong. It can't fix what's wrong. Well, that's what the law was. All the law was intended to do by God was to show us, we got a problem. We're out of line with God. We need help from God. But the law can never empower us to live the way we should. That's where grace comes in. See? That's where grace comes in. That's where the Spirit of God who lives within us comes in. Not the law, because we can never work our way to heaven. We can never merit the kingdom of God. We can never be good enough by trying to use the law as, as this you know, thing to live up to. That's not why God gave the law. So that's why Paul says, the law was never given for those who are in alignment with God, but for those who are out of alignment with God or not living in conformity, so that they can say, you know what, I got a problem. I got a problem. 
So again, I want to go back to that word legitimately and remind us. Think about this in application to our own lives. What are the resources and tools that God has given to us? And then think about it then on another level. I need to make sure as a Christian, we need to make sure as a church, that whatever God gives to us, that we're using it properly. That we're using it the way God intended for us to use it. Because we can be just as messed up. We can put ourselves on a really bad path, even by using the things that God gives us, if we don't use it the right way. Just like a tool, you know, that we all have around our house. You know, if you use the tool the way it was intended to be used, it can, it can be a great help and support. But if you don't know how to use the tool or you use it for something it shouldn't be used for, it can cause a lot of damage. The same thing is true with the things that God gives us. So we need to make sure that just because we have the things of God, that's not enough. We need to make sure that we are using them in the way God intended, for the purpose that he intended. And that's what Paul wants to make sure, because part of how we should behave as the people of God is not just realizing what God's given us, but to make sure that we're doing it right. In fact, to, to show you this even further, uh, go over to 2 Timothy for just a moment, to a very familiar verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul tells Timothy, make every effort... To present yourself before God as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed, teaching the message of truth accurately, making sure that you are that you are interpreting the word of God accurately, and then obviously that we're turning around and sharing it and teaching it accurately. That's so important. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we're offering this workshop coming up at the end of this month. It's, it's, it's also not just to learn how to get more out of the Bible, but to, to make sure that what I'm getting is, is right. That it's what God intended for me to get, and that I'm not coming up with some erroneous interpretation of God's Word that's going to take me down the wrong path. So back to then 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice the next thing here. In verse 10, after he's sort of given us this list... Uh, just a representative list of the people living out of alignment with God. He says, in fact, for any who live contrary to sound teaching. And so the next thing that we're sort of challenged with or confronted with is, I can be getting good teaching. And I can still live contrary, if you will, to it. I, I can still not be living the way I'm being taught by the Word of God to live. So it reminds us of how we need to make sure that we're not just taking in the Word of God, even if we're getting good teaching, even if we're getting good spiritual nourishment, I've got to make sure that I'm applying it and appropriating it to my life and that I'm living out the truth of God. Because it's one thing to say, well, I'm getting the Bible. It's another thing to say, I'm living it. And, and some people can be in an atmosphere where they're getting sound teaching, they're getting the Word of God, but they're not living it out. And we always need to make sure that that's one of the responsibilities we have as the people of God, is not just to put ourselves in an environment where we're getting good teaching, but where we're living it out. Now, here's something else though, that Paul's saying in this passage. Yes, we need to make sure we're getting sound teaching, because that's the only way we're going to grow and be healthy and all that, but... 
bad teaching is never going to get me there. Yes, I can live contrary to good teaching, but I, I'll never be able to be the person that I should be if I'm putting myself in an environment where I'm not getting good teaching, where I'm not getting the Word of God properly into my life on a consistent basis. And so that's something that Paul's pointing out. And then the word sound teaching here is so important. It, it means to make sure again that I'm getting a good spiritual diet. Because the word sound speaks about what is going to produce growth and health and fitness in my life. So even think about it again from a physical standpoint. They always tell us, you know, our diet, our physical diet is going to have an impact on how we are physically. You know, what kind of energy level we have and how we feel and all that. So if we, if we take in a bunch of junk, if you will, then our body isn't going to function at, at its highest level. Well, Paul's saying, Timothy, you make sure that you're giving your people, you know, good spiritual food. Because if we're taking in good spiritual food consistently, then spiritually our life should be reflecting that. We should be growing, we should be spiritually healthy, and we should be spiritually fit. And it all goes back to the importance of that sound teaching. And let's remember something here. Back uh, in Second Timothy, we don't have to turn there tonight, in chapter 4, remember what Paul says about sound teaching? He says, in the last days, people will not, a growing number of people within the church will not tolerate sound teaching. They will push sound teaching out of their life. They don't want that kind of teaching, you see. So that's why it's important that you and I make sure that we're getting sound teaching in our life. Well, obviously, too, it presupposes that if you and I make sure that we're sharing the Word of God accurately with others, then it, may, it behooves us that we've got to be taking it in in a proper way, too. We've got to make sure that we're getting it right before we pass it on to others. Because just like a, a disease or an epidemic, if I, if I get something wrong about the Word of God and then I pass that on, that can be very destructive, too. So i got to make sure that what I'm passing on as a pastor teacher what any of us as Christians are passing on to other Christians or even non-believers about the Word of God. We've got to make sure it's sound. We've got to make sure it's accurate, you see. Because we can do just as, even though it's the Word of God, we can do a lot of damage by passing on something that's not correct, not sound. And so that's one of the key things that Paul's talking about here. So he's really dealt in these first 10 verses with how important it is that in a church, especially, because remember, this is all about how we behave in church and what the code of conduct is, that we are a church that teaches the right things, that provides people with spiritual food and nourishment so we can all grow and mature and be spiritually healthy and fit. And that we reject anything that is not sound, you see. And that we remember to use things legitimately. Then, beginning in verse 11, Paul begins to share some of his personal testimony. And before we get into this tonight, I just want to remind all of us to get, again of the power of our personal testimony. How important it is that we share and learn to share what God has done, and especially what God is doing in our lives. Because 
it's something that it's hard to refute. I mean, people can sit there and they can, you know, they can try to maybe argue if they will and debate about things in the Bible, but when we present our own life as a, as a showpiece, if you will, uh, for the reality of God, just like Paul, Paul's like, here was my life before I came to Christ. And here's what my life is like now. And the only explanation is Jesus Christ. How can you argue with that? You know me. You knew what I was like. How can you explain the difference and the transformation and the change that's taking place in my life apart from God? That's why our testimony is so important. And again, not just the testimony of how we came to know the Lord, but even what the Lord is doing in our lives now, keeping our testimony fresh and current, what God, what the changes that God is bringing about now, it's very powerful in other people's lives. Don't discount your personal testimony. So notice Paul begins by saying this, this good teaching, this sound teaching, is in agreement with the glorious gospel, this good news that the blessed God entrusted to me. The next key word is the word entrusted. It means that God has committed this to him. It means that God has placed this into his hands as a stewardship. And it is a reminder to all of us as part of the church of God that God has done the same thing with us. He has literally placed one of the things. He has literally placed his word in our hands as a stewardship, as Paul has talked to Timothy about. And said, it's up to us to make sure that we handle this word accurately. It's up to us to make sure that we preserve the word of God, that we guard it, that we protect it, that we don't have anybody add to it, that we don't have anybody subtract from it, that we make sure that what we pass on to the next generation and to other people and we share with them is exactly what God intended. You see, that's a stewardship. But really what we need to be reminded of as the people of God, as part of the household of God and the church of God is our whole life is a stewardship. That's how we have to look at our Christian life. God has entrusted to us so many things. And God is asking us to manage these things. That's what being a steward is. I am managing what is someone else's. And so when God gives us things, when God blesses our lives, when he gives us all these resources, and we're going to talk Sunday about the fact that God has blessed us more than we could ever imagine. When God gives us all these things, we always have to remember, this is a trust from God. This is something that God has allowed me to be entrusted with, and now I am a steward. That's why if you read the Gospels, so many of Jesus' teachings regarded stewardship and how to be good stewards. There were so many parables that Jesus gave on being good stewards, good managers, good administrators of the things that God has given to us. And it's something that we're all going to be accountable for. It's something that we as a church are going to be accountable for. In a sense, we're going to be accountable for the resources that God has given to us. It's an entrustment. And that's something that we all need to be reminded of. So Paul is saying, wow, 
God trusted me with his word, with his glorious gospel. And I had to make sure that I passed it on faithfully to you, Timothy. And now, Timothy, I'm charging you. You've got to pass it on faithfully to the people in your church. And so on and so on and so on. Verse 12. I am grateful to the one who has strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he considered me faithful in putting me in the ministry. I got 25 minutes. I don't know. I might not get any further than this because, oh my goodness, is this verse rich. And does this verse contradict the way 99 and 9 tenths percent of the churches do ministry today, including sometimes the oasis? So let's talk about it. First, notice though that one of the characteristics of the people of God in the church should be we should continually be grateful. The word grateful, thankful to God for his undeserved favor. We should wake up every day, thankful people, grateful, expressing our gratitude to God for how good he has been to us. That he would, based in the context, entrust us with so many valuable things. In fact, the Old Testament word, blessed, which, by the way, is the Hebrew word Barak. I think we can remember that. I think our president's first name is that, right? But do you know what the Hebrew word Barak means? It means that God has entrusted us with what is of greatest value. When you think of being blessed, that's how we should think of it. That God has entrusted us with what is of greatest value. That's being blessed. A lot of times in our, even Christian circles, we think being blessed speaks about, you know, good health and, and physical prosperity and, and all of these things and comfort and pleasure. No. Being blessed from God's perspective is, I've entrusted you with what's of greatest value. That's being blessed. And so Paul says, I am grateful, God, to you. You have been so good to me in that, first of all, you have strengthened me. You have empowered me. You have enabled me. Literally, you have shared your strength with me as I now serve you. Because that's the context of verse 12. We're going to get to that in just a moment. You see, what Paul is reminding us of is that when we serve the Lord in any capacity at all, And that's what the people of God and the church of God are to be doing. We are to be serving. Paul says, remember this, that God will always strengthen us to serve Him. He will literally share His strength with us so that we can serve Him properly, adequately. The capability and the ability does not come from us. All we have to do is make ourselves available. It's our availability that that matters. All we do is present ourselves to God and say, God, I'm available, I'm here. And God says, okay, now I'm going to empower you to do what I'm calling you or asking you to do. And Paul recognized that, and we need to as well. And that's why, again, as the people of God, if we're going to serve in the church and do anything representative of the the Oasis or any church that we're a part of, we need to make sure that we are a people that are continually being strengthened by God. That we're not trying to serve Him in our own power and in our own strength, but that we're doing it in the strength that He shares with us, which is what Paul says. Then he says this, 
I am grateful to the one who has strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he considered me faithful. The word considered means that God took his time. He didn't rush. And he, and he observed Paul's life. And he says, after a period of time, because that's what the word considered means. It, to consider something isn't, isn't a quick thing. It's, I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to watch for a while. I'm going to observe for a while. And so Paul is, is saying, this is what God did in my life. He sat back and watched me. And he, after he observed and watched me for a while, he came to the conclusion that I was faithful. We talked about that Sunday. That I had developed some discipline in my life. That I was reliable. That I was dependable. That I was trustworthy. And then don't miss what Paul says. And this is where we as churches get this wrong. Then Paul said, He placed me into His ministry. But only after he observed, I was faithful. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards or servants of God that we be found faithful. Because God will never ask somebody to serve Him who's unfaithful. Because God understands how much will that blow up the ministry. If you get people into all these positions in a local church and you can't count on them, won't that just cause chaos? That's why God says, you know what? You and I have to, in a sense, prove ourselves faithful to God and then God will ask us to start doing things for Him. See, again, so this is where we go wrong in the church. How, how many churches... You know, as soon as you start going to a church, they're like, they're up there going, hey, we need you to serve here and we need you to serve. And they haven't even taken the time to, to challenge us that we've got to be faithful first before you ever volunteer for service. No, it's just like we just try to get Christians to fill positions and, and, and fill the gap. We, we don't take the time to observe whether they're faithful or not. We don't sit down and even have a conversation about, is this something God you feel is calling you to and putting you into? Because that's more important than us trying to cajole you and manipulate you into service and, and try to twist your arm into service. That's not the way service is to be done in the church. Service is to be done in the church by those who, first of all, begin to live a faithful life. They're dependable. They're reliable. They can be counted on. Then after that, then God will begin to call them to specific ministries in the church. That's how service is supposed to be done. That's how the church is supposed to approach service. That's how we're to teach our people about serving. Is that first comes faithfulness, then service. I mean, think about this even in the secular world. I just... In my spare time, I think because I'm, I'm weird, I'll, I'll, I'll read almost anything and everything. So, because I'm a speed reader anyway, it doesn't take me long to get through things. So every once in a while, I'll, you know, peruse the Wall Street Journal or business stuff too. And, and one of the things that I keep reading and have really for the last 15, 20 years is how many millions of dollars Fortune 500 companies 
are having to spend on just going back after they hire people and just going over the basics of simple, what we would, you know, a generation ago just said, isn't that just simple character issues and work ethic and all of that about being at work every day and being there on time and doing your job and all the, they, they have to spend all this money just trying to get people in their own company. You know, these, these people who come out of college who have, you know, the, the, the world by the tail, they have to spend so much money trying to just get the people in their company faithful. And they lose millions of dollars every year because their people and their businesses and their companies aren't faithful. They can't be relied upon. They can't be dependable. You see. Well, the, the same principle is true in the church. The church would run so much more efficiently if we spent our time teaching our people to be faithful and then having our people grow and be healthy and fit and then let God put them into the ministries within that local church that He wants to and then we support them after the fact. It would run so much better because that's the way God designed it. But like I said, so many churches today get it just backwards. People start coming to church and say, Hey, you want to serve? We got this class over here. We need somebody to fill. Well, I, you know, I'm not really a teacher. That's not really my... But yeah, I'll, I'll do it because nobody else will do it. I, I feel guilty. I'll, I'll plug that hole. And then we wonder why our ministries suffer. Why say, it, for instance, whatever that class is, why that class isn't thriving. Because you don't have the right person in there to do that. You're just trying to fill holes. That's why churches that create all these programs and all these ministries and try to get then all these people to plug into it are doing it just the opposite of what God said the church should be designed to do. The first and foremost thing the church should be designed to do is to create an environment where faithful people are being developed. Basically where we're making disciples. Then it is out of those faithful disciples, those disciplined believers, that God will put His hand on people and call them and put them into the ministry. And when that happens, when you get God putting the right people into the right place at His timing, when He sees, as He did with Paul, that after observing over time, I consider you to be faithful, then I'm going to place you in the ministry? Whoa. That's the way it's to be done. By the way, Another interesting thing here is the word ministry. It doesn't mean full-time ministry like you. It's not talking about people like me, Nicole, Crystal, Pastor Chad, you know, people that are like... The, the Greek word literally means those who are willing to wait on tables. The most menial thing you can do. So notice what Paul's saying. I am so grateful that God asked me to wait on a table for him. Because if the Lord asked me to do it and he thought I was reliable enough to wait on tables, I'm good with that. Again, this just blows our conception of what service is. Because so many Christians, they want to come into a church and they want a certain position and, and they want certain power and all these things. And, and Paul's saying, do you realize what the essence of ministry really is? It's, it's, just, it's just doing whatever God needs us to do. If I have to wait on a table for God, then so be it. In other words, Paul's saying, for the Christian who's 
who's a true, faithful follower of Jesus Christ, nothing God would ask me to do is too small or, or too beneath me to do. I shouldn't say, well, you know, I'm above that. That's, Paul says, that's not the way our mindset should be as a Christian. How could we as human beings say something is beneath me whenever the Lord of glory left heaven and came here as a human being to die for our sins? If anything was beneath somebody, that was beneath him. And he didn't say yet, he didn't say no, he didn't refuse. And so Paul's saying, I'm so grateful to God that after a period of time, I proved myself faithful. He put me into the waiting on tables for him. If that's what God wanted me to do, then so be it. I was so thankful that this guy, Paul speaking of, that God allowed me the opportunity to do anything for him. That thrilled his heart. Because notice now what Paul is saying. Paul says, even though, verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I was treated with mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. One of the things that Paul is saying is, you realize that with our God, our past doesn't matter to Him. It, what matters is where I am now. Because Paul said, I had a terrible past. I had a terrible past. But my past never kept me or prevented me from coming to faith in Christ and being a Christian. And it doesn't even prevent me from serving God. That's the kind of God He is. Because as long as I'm willing to follow Him now, as long as I'm willing to be faithful to Him now, He'll put me in ministry. Because He won't hold my past against me. The word blasphemer is, you know, that's, that's pretty straight up. The word persecutor, we know what that means. But in the Greek language, the word arrogant, I think, is sort of an unfortunate English translation. I think the better one, and the Net Bible even references this or puts a note there down at the bottom. I think the better word would be cruel. Because the word literally means one who took pleasure in hurting other people. Paul said, that was me. I actually was at a point in my life before I knew Christ where I took pleasure in hurting people. And he says, yet God forgave me of that. Not only forgave me for that, not only allowed me to be one of his children, he put me into ministry. Paul said, I think, and, and this, this should be the attitude in the church with the people of God. We should never get over, never get over our salvation. Never get over the privilege of not only being a child of God, but that God allows us to serve Him because God doesn't need us, but God wants to use us. He wants to show us these broken, fragile, frail, weak human beings what the mighty God can do through them if we'll just make ourselves available. And that's what Paul was saying. I don't think Paul ever got over that. Because Paul says, I was treated with mercy. I was treated with pity and compassion, given a second chance, because I acted ignorantly 
in unbelief. Let me talk about this for a minute. This is an important point that Paul's making here. Paul is saying, the reason I lived the way I did was because I really didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. All I needed was the right information. And if I got the right information, God knew I would respond to that information. So notice something here. This is important differentiation that Paul, I think, is bringing out here. You and I have to make sure that we differentiate or make a distinction between those who the reason they act or are acting the way they are is simply out of ignorance. If they knew what, what the real deal was, if they knew the truth, if they knew the right way, then they would respond and, and they would do it. And that God knew, and, and obviously Paul said, God knew that's all I needed. I just needed the revelation that Jesus really was the Messiah. And once I knew that, I was on board. But we also have to understand that there's a difference between then those that, that's not the issue. The, the issue isn't more knowledge to some people. The issue isn't more light to some people. God could give them more light and more understanding, but it's not a matter of light for them. It's a matter of will. It's a volitional issue, not an intellectual issue. See, with Paul, what he's saying is, it was merely uh, an intellectual issue with me. If I had the right information, God knew I would respond. But some people, God understands, I could give you more revelation. You won't respond. Because it, it's, it's your will. You won't submit. You, I mean, we as parents know this. We have to separate the difference when we raise our children between, is this a behavior that they're doing because they're, just, they're doing it out of ignorance? If they knew the right information, if they knew that would really hurt them and whatever, they would go, oh, well then I, I won't do that anymore. Or is it a matter that they just look at you like, yeah, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know it's not right, but I want to. See, that, that's a will thing. That's not an information. I can't just, as a parent, give them more information. That's a hard issue. And we have to make sure that we see that that's, that's the difference here. For Paul, it wasn't a volitional thing. It was simply, if God gives me the right information, I'll respond in the right way. Now, Paul's saying, though, and you're going to see this, that didn't mean that Paul took his salvation lightly at all. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. He said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, opposing the divine mission of Jesus, and our Lord's grace was abundant, literally beyond measure, bringing me faith, a foundation in my life. We sang about that tonight. That Jesus is the solid rock upon whom we stand. That's what really faith is. It's our foundation for life. And then love. God gave Paul a foundation he never had and he gave him, he flooded his life with love that he had never experienced before. All beyond measure, Paul says. And then he says this, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy. It can be relied on. And it deserves full acceptance. Think of it as Paul saying, this, what I'm about to tell you, is welcome it with arms open wide. 
Give it a warm welcome and reception in your life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. He came to deliver us from our sin and to make us whole. That's why He came. And then Paul goes on to say, and I am the worst of them. Literally, Paul said, I was the number one sinner. That's how Paul looked at himself. I was the number one sinner. And he's saying that because he wants people to understand. If I'm the number one sinner and God saved me, then guess what? God can save anybody. No one then is beyond the grace and scope of God. And second, Paul's also saying this in this context. If I was the number one sinner and God is still pleased to put me into his ministry and have me serve him, then that means that anybody can serve him. Anybody. If Paul could serve him, especially to the level that Paul served God, then any of us can live a life of service to God. Any of us can be a great servant of the Lord. It has nothing to do with our past. It has everything Paul said to do with our faithfulness now. Are we willing to demonstrate before God that we are faithful? If we are, then Paul assures us in this context, He, God Himself, will put you, He will appoint you, He will call you to specific ministry for Him. We don't put people in ministry. That's not our job. We don't know exactly where they should fit and when what God has laid on their heart and what gifts and ability. I mean, we can try to figure all that out. In so many churches, we spend so much time trying to figure out each other's gifts and abilities and talents, but that's really not what we should be spending our time on. Let God do that. Then once God has done it, let's support them in that. What we should be focused on is making disciples and building people to be more faithful. Once they're faithful, God will take care of putting them into the ministry and calling them to the specific things that God wants to call them into. So let me quickly review here because I did not keep up with my key words. I just realized that. So let me go back. Keyword number one, legitimately, verse eight. That's so important that the things that God gives us, we use properly. Second key word or key words, live contrary down in verse 10. We've got to make sure that what we are hearing, what we are studying, what we are taking in from the word of God, that we're living out the word of God. Sound teaching would be the next key word or words. Making sure that as we approach the Bible, as we allow ourselves to be in an environment where the Bible is taught that the words that we are taking in is good spiritual diet, good nourishment, that it is producing in our lives growth and spiritual health and fitness. That's what the word sound means. Next key word, entrusted, verse 11. That all of our life as people in the household of God are stewards. God has committed things into our trust and we are to manage them for His glory and His honor. 
Next key word, verse 12, grateful. We are to be thankful for God's undeserved favor every day. Next key word, strengthened. When God calls us and puts us into places of ministry, He will empower us. He will enable us. He will share His strength with us. Next key word, faithful. Reliable. Dependable. One who can be counted on. And then the next key word there, ministry. Again, the word literally means waiting on tables. Let me think if I can say this or pronounce it properly. The Greek word diakonuia is this word for ministry here. It's where we get in the New Testament the word deacon or deaconess. It's where that comes from. One who's just going around just running around just waiting on tables, basically. And, and sort of the root of this also, I, I didn't mention this earlier, speaks about great attentiveness. Because remember, I've, I've used this before. The, the old word for one, when you went to a restaurant and, and they waited on you, a good waiter who's waiting on your table is one who's attentive. If... if If they've lost sight of the needs at your table, then they're not a good waiter. So God is calling us into His ministry, not only asking us to be willing to do whatever He asks us to do, because nothing should be beneath us, but that we make sure that as we do it, that we're attentive. We're attentive waiters. Next key word, ignorantly, in verse 13. There's a difference between doing something out of ignorance and all I need is more revelation, more light, and that'll clear it up, or doing something that it's a will issue. It's a a volitional thing. Even if I had more light, I still wouldn't do it. And then the next uh, key word for me would probably be the word worst. Where Paul says, hey, after all is said and done, I consider myself the number one sinner. If God can use me, he can use anybody. And that's what he was really encouraging Timothy to pass on to his own congregation, his own church there in Ephesus. Teach these people about these things. This is what the household of God, this is our code of conduct. This is how God wants us as the people of God to do church. This is his way of doing church. Not our way of doing church. This is His way of doing church. We've got to make sure at the Oasis that we strive to do church the way God designed it to be. Not the way we want it to be. Or the way we think it should be. And I'm so excited to share this letter with you on these Wednesday nights. I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and about our church and maybe even how to do ministry more effectively. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for your very powerful word. Because we've been reminded tonight, again, Lord, even from the life of Paul himself, how powerful your transforming grace and your word is in our lives. It, It can change us. It can change our heart. It can change the direction of our life. It can change the whole trajectory of our life. It changes our destiny if we allow it to. 
And so God, I pray tonight that we would be reminded about the power of even our own personal testimony. Paul was never afraid to share what God had done and what God was doing in his life because he knew it would make an impact. People can argue about so many things, but a human life, a human being standing before them who they know has changed, what is the answer for that change? I mean, they can deny it, but it's an awful powerful evidence for the reality of God. I pray, God, that our lives would continually be evidence that you are real, that you are alive, that you are active in this world even today. That you are changing and transforming us and our church to be more like Jesus Christ every day. God, use these messages out of 1 Timothy to strengthen us individually and to strengthen us corporately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.